thank you once again uh, uh, for joining us for this webinar this lunchtime. Uh, I am pleased to be here in CRC, Sungai Buloh, obviously, uh, in their new office. Looks very nice. Looks very nice. And uh, I think today's webinar is going to be interesting because we are looking at uh, two very important, one very important aspect of, of our response uh, to COVID-19 in our country. Uh, clearly, uh, we are concerned about mortality and like any other country, that was something we focused very much on. I'm sure you would agree with me generally, I think we have done very well in, in the number of mortalities that we have by keeping it low. Uh, we are fortunate and also we have to thank a lot of people working uh, in the clinical side to, to make sure our patients get the best that we can have. Now, I'm sure all of us agree that there's still a lot of things uncertain about treatment and management. And in the last four months or five months, I think the treatment pendulum has shifted from one side to another and you'll probably shift again going forward, as we know. Lately, in the press, in the media, in the last month or two, there's been some breakthrough landmark studies that have shown some good data on certain therapeutics. And sometimes it's difficult to keep track with them because these things change so fast. And especially now in the COVID-19, when we have a lot of preprints, uh, a lot of publications that pub get published even before they get adequate peer review, sometimes it can actually confuse things a lot uh, uh, in the clinical setting. So I, we thought it would be a good time to get uh, our expert, our local expert who has had the most experience looking after COVID-19 in our country, uh, Dr. Suresh Kumar, who is the head of the Department of Medicine and head of infectious diseases uh, at Sungai Buloh Hospital, to share with us uh, a current update about COVID-19 therapeutics. And he will look at not just only his experience here, but also looking at the current and new data that's flown in, flown in over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, after which we will hear from Dr. Faiza Muhammad Zain, uh, the prettier of the two speakers. Uh, okay, Suresh is also quite pretty, but okay, maybe Faiza niche him a little bit. Lah, huh? uh, Faiza, of course, is, uh, I'll introduce Faiza's credentials afterwards when Faiza's turn to speak. I, you might see her on the screen, all right? So without further ado, I'm going to ask uh, to pass the mic to Suresh, and uh, he will start his presentation now. Thank you, Suresh. All yours. Uh, thank you, Dr. Chris. Um, uh, I think as, as Chris has mentioned, um, um, we have had uh, quite a few changes in, uh, in COVID management, um, and I, th I thought we thought it's time for us to give an update on what we think currently uh, the way COVID should be managed. Um, okay, uh, uh, this is the, the, the regular advice that we write, uh, we put up the slides regarding um, the, this particular webinar um, and with uh, that I'm on. So this is how we have been classifying um, um, COVID uh, in, in Malaysia. This is our own way of classifying it. Uh, being um, one is by uh, uh, one is uh, using category one is called asymptomatic uh, down to category five that is uh, critically ill with multi-organ involvement. So many of the things that I talk about um, uh, are related to this clinical categories. So you can group, group category one and three uh, as mild because they are the ones who do not require oxygen at all. And the category four and five are the ones who require supplemental oxygen or, or require ventilation. And so. That's how we divide our, our clinical categories, right? Okay. So if you look at our own data, this is the data about uh, 
we have, uh, I think the, the, the NI, along with NIH, our CRC, as well the rest of the centers in the country, we have managed to put in about 3,600 patients into a, into a database currently. And this is a spread of the cases that you can see. Majority of the cases are, are mild, mild cases, as you can see here. And, uh, and the number of um, uh, the, the, the one, one in this, these are the severe cases, and these are the smaller in number, as you can see here. And the majority of the cases that we have seen in, uh, in our country are, are mild, that means category one, two, and three, and a small number that are severe. So to get, an, to get you an idea of what proportion are mild and what proportion are severe in the country. Right? Uh, so what, what do we do with mild, mild disease, uh, which means clinical category one and two? Uh, the bottom row is uh, sort of a picture, picture of day of illness, right? This is a day of illness that we have. Um, so what happens is they have a viral response phase and, uh, and, uh, and, then, and then slowly the virus tapers off and they get better. And this virus response phase can be associated with no symptoms, mild symptoms, or, or, or a, a pneumonia which does not require oxygen. So that's a viral response phase. And, um, and when it comes to severe disease, category four or category five, so uh, we would like to see who, when, and how. Right? So who gets these severe diseases? Uh, these are the risk factors for severe diseases, uh, older age groups, pre-existing pre pulmonary disease, chronic kidney disease, diabetes with HbA1c 7.6 above, history of hypertension, history of cardiovascular disease, obesity. These are the ones more likely to get severe disease, a risk factor. Uh, when, does, when do people get severe disease? We usually think they get anywhere from day five to day 10 of disease. That's when severe disease usually happens. Uh, what are the warning signs? What predicts that these people are going to get severe disease? Um, these are people who have got um, uh, a shortness of breath on exertion, those who have got SpO2 that is low, uh, or somebody has got persistent or new onset fever. These, these are the ones, clinical features, that tells us this person is going to deteriorate. Laboratory, laboratory uh, markers that tells us they're going to deteriorate will be increasing CRP, a rising CRP, uh, sorry, our, our CRP that is raised, uh, you know. We don't have data for it. Uh, we don't have uh, uh, solid data for it, but our impression is uh, CRP is more than 70 to 100 seems to be a warning sign. Uh, increasing ferritin or a rise ferritin, uh, ferritin more than 500, uh, we think it is, is, a, is a warning sign. Uh, persistently low uh, or dropping uh, lymphocyte count, uh, lymphocyte count of less than one, again, is a warning sign that uh, they might get severe disease. And radiological criteria will be a multi-loba involvement or rapidly worsening chest x-rays. These are the features we look for. So in all the cases that we are looking for, we look for risk factors, we look for uh, uh, the duration of disease, how long they've been sick, and then we look, look out for warning signs. And uh, with regards to risk factors, the most, the most significant risk factor is age. As you can see here, this is again data from our database looking at age group versus severe disease. As you can see here, the younger age group, there's hardly anybody who gets severe disease. On the other hand, if you look at uh, uh, somebody who's more than 81 years of age, 63% of them get severe disease. So age uh, by far is the most uh, important risk factor for somebody to get uh, uh, severe disease. Uh, moving on to uh, the phenotypes of severe disease that we see. Uh, so the, as I mentioned earlier, everybody has a viral response phase. 
And then the people who get severe disease, especially one subgroup of them, uh, what, I, what, what I, I call now as a CRS subgroup, a cytokine release syndrome subgroup, the host inflammatory response kicks in. And, and obviously it happens somewhere from day, anywhere from day five to day 10 of disease. And the host inflammatory response kicks in and they get severe disease. So the severe disease is not because the virus is uh, uncontrolled, the severe disease is because of host inflammatory response. Uh, so how do we pick up these patients clinically? Uh, uh, we pick it up by persistent or new onset fever, increasing oxygen requirement. So all these actually, uh, as you know, are, are, we call them warning signs. Like increasing CRP, increasing ferritin, low or dropping absolute lymphocyte count, and if, if it is available, uh, high interleukin-6 levels. So when we have somebody who is becoming more hypoxic, and along with it, we see all these markers, it, it sort of hints to us that this person is getting a severe disease because of post-inflammatory response. The second subgroup of patients that get severe disease is the ones that have got comorbids. So they have the viral response phase, and then their comorbids worsen. So classically, we see that in our end-stage renal failure patients who are dialysis-dependent, they, they, they might require high-flow mask or even ventilation, but predominantly it is because of the, the comorbids getting worse, nothing else. So, the, so there are some people who, who deteriorate purely because their comorbids are not controlled. That's the comorbid group. And the last group that, that gets severe disease is, is, is a viral pneumonia group. Those, the viral response is not controlled at all. The host inflammatory response is there, but it's not very prominent. And this group are, are the people who, who have persistent or new onset fever and increasing oxygen requirement, but all these markers don't go up. These markers that tells us about inflammatory phase doesn't go up. So this is a group where there is a viral response phase that is, that is predominant. And, uh, and so, uh, depending, on, depending on, on the risk profile, the patients could deteriorate because of any of these parameters, right? Okay. Uh, so, when we look at uh, uh, COVID-19 treatment, uh, so we have three modalities of treatment that I need to discuss about. One is the anti-inflammatory or immunomodulatory therapy. The second is antivirals. And the third is regarding the anticoagulation uh, treatment. I'll just go through it one by one, right? Um, there's an early study uh, done in Germany that looked at um, uh, IL-6 levels. IL-6 levels, just 40 patients. Uh, 40 patients, uh, 32 per, one third of them required ventilation. And if you look at IL-6 levels, uh, when, when the IL-6 level is less than 80, only 4% required intubation. The IL-6 is more than 80, uh, it was 92% of them required intubation. And uh, the IL-6 started going up about 1.5 days before intubation, sort of telling us whether uh, IL-6 levels predicted uh, people who need to be intubated. And so this sort of some, uh, very early on told us that, you know, uh, there is an inflammatory response that needs to be tackled uh, when we control severe, when we control COVID, right? Um, there are subsequent studies. There's a study in, uh, in, in Italy where they gave uh, IL-6 inhibitor called tocilizumab. When they gave IL-6 inhibitor, what happened? The D-dimer rates came down. The CRP levels came down. The ferritin levels a uh, bit, more, bit more slow and coming down. And the absolute lymphocyte count went up. So all the warning signs I spoke to you about, all those sort of recovered. And if you can see here, the PAO to FIO2 ratio improved, the oxygenation improved, showing, showing us that, uh, that there is an inflammatory response 
especially IL-6 increase and correcting it makes it makes it better, right? Uh, uh, this is moving on to the recovery study in UK uh, uh, that was done in UK, uh, which is which is just starting to come out as as press releases before it came, before it comes out as a as a as a journal paper. In this particular study, they gave DEXA for for as indiscriminately, not not like how uh, based on the warning signs I spoke to you about. I told you about the warning signs like CRP going up, ferritin going up, all that was not looked at. Everybody was given dexamethasone six milligrams and then compared with placebo. Uh, and they looked at 28 day mortality rates. So if you look at the 1007 of them who are mechanically ventilated, dexamethasone improved the 28 day mortality uh, by about 30%, one third. And if you looked at those who are supplemental oxygen, about 3,000 or about four, almost 4,000 people were in this study arm, uh, it, it improved the mortality by about 20%. But if the dexamethasone was given for people who were not on supplemental oxygen, there was no improvement in, uh, in mortality. In fact, maybe you could argue there was some non-significant direction towards harm. So sort of, sort of tells us that, you know, if you had to give, so majority, at least, at least, a big chunk of the deteriorations in severe dengue is because of inflammatory response. Sorry, uh, dengue. Uh, sorry, it's COVID. Uh, uh, inflammatory. Uh, big severe. A big chunk of the deteriorations in COVID is actually because of inflammatory response. Because giving dexamethasone to everybody actually uh, decreases the mortality mortality rate. And then, what 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 do what do our MOH guidelines say with regards to this? Right. Uh, so right from uh, right from quite uh, in April, we have we have said if patients on category four and category five, those who require oxygen, if we if we need to look out for markers such as a cytokine release syndrome based on these criteria mentioned earlier. So when any of these criteria is present, then our recommendation is to give dexamethasone, metalpred, or tocilizumab. Uh, uh, we, 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 we have used a shorter course of treatment compared to what is recommended in the, in the recovery study. This is, our, this is our own recommendation. We are still continuing this particular recommendation. Uh, so, but we are not giving to everybody that requires oxygen uh, 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 worsening, but we are looking for markers of high uh, cytokine release before giving it. But, uh, and uh, and that's, that's our data. Right? So that's regarding anti-inflammatory immunomodulatory therapy. Moving on to antivirals, uh, role of antivirals in treatment. Uh, so early on, there's been a, a study um, uh, by, done by the uh, randomized study done by the Chinese group uh, that looked at calitralopinavir, retinavir, a HIV drug that was repurposed for COVID. And uh, they, the, the, the study, the final result of the study was lopinavir did not make a difference. But something, uh, some information came out from that study is that we, we need to give antivirals early. If you can see this particular graph, this particular graph shows you whether there is no lopinavir, uh, lopinavir given uh, uh, less than 10 days. When you give it lopinavir less than 10 days, it made a difference with regards to uh, uh, number of people who are becoming uh, COVID negative. But if you give uh, overall study, there was no difference. And so it looks like for us to, for antivirals to work, we need to give it early. A uh, second study is, uh, there's, a, there's a, a study from um, um, Hong Kong. Um, here, they've tried, they tried three drugs, um, interferon beta, ribavirin, and lopinavir, and um, um, uh, 
the interferon, uh, the three drugs, interferon, beta, lopinavir, and uh, and uh, and ribavirin, right? Again, some some. Uh, uh, so so the Hong Kong study shows that you know if you were to use three drugs, less than seven days, best outcome. Compared to the worst outcome will be lopinavir alone given more than seven days. So looks like if you were to use antivirals as a treatment modality, maybe we need it in combination and also has to be given early. So this particular study says we need to probably give it less than seven days of disease. Uh, uh, and, 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 and the most recent study is the study that looked at remdesivir. Uh, remdesivir for treatment of uh, COVID-19 done in, done in US. And uh, these are the baseline characteristic of patients. Majority of the patients they gave remdesivir uh, is for hospitalized patients receiving supplemental oxygen. Uh, they've also had patients, hospitalized patients, not receiving supplemental oxygen. And then there are other groups, non-invasive ventilation, invasive ventilation, or, and ECMO. So these are groups that they had. So this is the best, this is the least sick group, this is a subsequent group, and these two are the, are the, are the critically ill group. And they had about 1,000 patients uh, or 500 remdesivir and 500 on, on placebo. Right. Um, and, and if you look at the data, the ones that did not require oxygen, the, the, the outcome was not different. The, 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 what, they, what they looked at was days to recovery, meaning the, how many days it took to go back to category one and two, uh, at, at least two category points less, that is days to recover, because the study was published so fast that they couldn't look at mortality data yet. And so if you look at that, if you look at it, the overall study, there was uh, people who took remdesivir became well faster 11 at day 11, while people who took placebo became well slower. It took 15 days. And most of that data was in the severe group, uh, uh, 12 days versus 18 days. The one that did not require oxygen, there was no difference in the two groups. So the question is whether the milder group we ever need to give antivirals or not is a, is, is a, is a question that we have to ask ourselves. Right? Okay. And if you look at the mortality, as I told you earlier, the mortality data was not complete. Um, uh, they did not have uh, complete data for the mortality because it was published very early. The overall mortality benefit was 0.7, 30% uh, better mortality rate, but however, it was not statistically significant. Uh, overall, there's no, there was no mortality benefit. Either, either the study was not powered enough for that or the study was terminated too early, right? But if you can look at the signals, the best signal was for category five in patients who required oxygen. In category six and category seven, those who required ventilation and, uh, or, or required high flow mask and non-invasive ventilation, it did not seem to make a difference. Maybe antiviral alone is not enough in this group. Maybe the, what the UK recovery study did, the anti-inflammatory drugs are required in this particular group. The antivirals made a difference in, in this group and, and, and this group as far as um, uh, mortality benefit is concerned, but none of the data was statistically significant. We are waiting for more data from this particular study. Uh, the, the, the other drug that I want to talk about is favipravir, which is available in, in Malaysia currently, but not available in many of the Western countries. Uh, so favipravir was, was uh, this is a before and after study comparing lopinavir, retinavir, and favipravir. And uh, they looked at, again, uh, positivity rate, and they're able to show that favipravir compared to Calitra 
is was a better antiviral uh, as far as uh, bringing down making the nasopharyngeal swabs negative is concerned and it brought it down faster and this 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 translated into better ct scan results too ct scan improvement also was higher in the favipravir group compared to caletra group the patients in the study arm were very mild cases and uh, none of them were, none of them passed away or, or none of them were ventilated and so that's why the, 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 we couldn't look at mortality and school. So favipravir is also seems to be another antiviral that seems to work. The last one I want to talk about is uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, uh, I, there are many, many studies on hydroxychloroquine since uh, I just want to pull out one study, the French study uh, um, um, uh, that, that looked at hydroxychloroquine once again, because it is a French that confused us in the first place by saying that hydroxychloroquine is a wonder drug and, uh, and nobody should be without the drug. Um, and so this is, a random, this is actually a retrospective cohort study. They looked at all their patients who were on hydroxychloroquine versus those who were not on hydroxychloroquine. And, um, and, um, and, 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 they, and they tried to balance for all the relevant confounders like uh, age, times in symptom onset, and severity of disease at first presentation. So these are, these are the three important parameters, and they, and they adjusted for that. After adjusting for it, as you can see here, you know, the other thing I want to point out is um, they they gave it for patients who are who are at, at around eight days of illness. Many of them actually requiring oxygen. SpO was ninety two percent. Many of them requiring oxygen. This is a group that they gave uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, and they found there is no significant difference between the groups, either for transfer to ICU or death within seven days, all cause mortality, development of ARDS. All that was not significant. There was some nine point five percent of them had. Uh, Q, uh, QT prolongation that required intervention, discontinuation of drug. So showing that uh, you know hydroxychloroquine uh, may not make a difference uh, in these particular studies compared to one. So uh, we we are we are looking at our own data currently, and uh, and we looked at about uh, 586 patients um, uh, with stage two and stage three. So we're looking at patients who had mild disease to start with. They did not require oxygen. So 451 of them were initiated hydroxychloroquine. We gave it for five days. We compared them with historical cohorts. And about 135 patients, historical cohorts without hydroxychloroquine. Because at that particular juncture, before the national guideline was started, was put up on hydroxychloroquine, we were using only Caletra, especially in Austin-Lebanon per mile in Johor. And so this is what we compared with. And we were, we were, we were all hoping that you know, the hydroxychloroquine arm was prevented deterioration. But when we looked at our data, Proportion deteriorated to stage four to stage five. Hydroxychloroquine was 10% and pre-hydroxychloroquine was 8.9%. Uh, they, they were not statistically significant. And so uh, hydroxychloroquine doesn't seem to prevent deterioration uh, to, to, to rapid disease. Uh, we are looking at this data again and again. We are trying to analyze it, looking for analyzing for confounders some more to see whether whether we are we we can um, uh, we can we, whether we get any different results. But based on all this data and the data from, uh, I think, from the solidarity study that is going to come out again, a WHO solidarity study that's going to come out again saying that hydroxychloroquine is not going to make a difference. I think uh, the hydroxychloroquine um, uh, era or, or in, in Malaysia might stop and we may not be using hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID uh, for the time being. Right? But of course, the definitive data is going to come out from this study that is done by NIH that's including 2,000 patients. 
they're looking at people who are early COVID disease, early COVID disease. So if you're hospitalized, you exclude them from the study and see whether hydroxychloroquine started very early will prevent hospitalization. Uh, this is including 2,000 patients because um, that's the kind of data that we, that's the kind of numbers we need to prove this data once and for all. So uh, until this, uh, this will be the conclusive study that, that tells us about hydroxychloroquine. Uh, so what does our MOH guideline says? For category four and category five, we use lopinavir, ritonavir, or atazanavir, ritonavir, or protease inhibitors, and favipravir, that's the two drugs that we are currently using, but just remember the favipravir teratogenic, and so we'll have to be careful in, uh, in, uh, in reproductive age group. Uh, but if somebody comes less than seven days of illness uh, from the data from Hong Kong, we, we will use beta interferon therapy if they come in less than seven days. More than seven days, we, they will just get only these two drugs. These are the drugs that we're using. Again, we are all the patients that were starting on, the st on, on, on these drugs are part of our registry, and we will analyze the data the same way we analyze the data with, uh, with, uh, with uh, hydroxychloroquine from time to time and, and revise our guidelines. Uh, and uh, and uh, I've mentioned this earlier. So, so we, we, we don't know. Category 4, category 4, very clear. So we still don't know for category 3 with risk factors or with warning signs whether we should start treatment. Uh, we were used to starting treatment there, but when we looked at the Remdesivir study, we have to go back to the drawing board and ask ourselves whether do we need to treat category 3 uh, with risk factors or category 3 with warning signs. Category 4 and 5 are very clear. We will still give antiviral treatment. Uh, moving on to the last part of it is regarding anticoagulation. There is tons of literature out there now that uh, COVID-19 uh, causes hypercoagulability and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and causes lots of... Uh, even in Sungaibulu, we had four to five patients who had confirmed pulmonary embolism uh, due to COVID. And so these two, th these two uh, arms are clear-cut. So the current data says we need to do full-dose anticoagulation. Uh, example, if you were to use enoxaparin, we have to use one milligram per kilogram, 12 hourly. In anybody who's got confirmed venous thromboembolisms, anybody you even suspect uh, pulmonary embolism, maybe they have sudden de deterioration in oxygenation, sudden deterioration human hemodynamic sensitivity, or they're getting acute core pulmonary, the right heart, uh, the, there is right heart dilatation, then you should start full dose anticoagulation. You, can, you should also start full dose anticoagulation if you're starting the clotting of the vascular devices. So I'm told by my intensivist, uh, 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 Lise, uh, Dr. Lee C.K. saying that, you know, the CRT circuits very often gets uh, clotted in, in COVID patients more than others, other critically ill patients. And so all these patients get a full dose in oxaparin. While on the other side, prophylaxis, uh, 30 to 40 milligrams, for example, if you had to use inoxaparin, 30 to 40 milligrams of inoxaparin, depending on renal function, we, we, we give for all patients requiring supplemental oxygen. So category four, anybody in category four, we start them on, on, on prophylaxis. But the current literature currently saying, data coming out from Europe, saying that these patients, while on prophylaxis, a lot of them are still getting uh, throm uh, thrombosis. And, and so the, this group is, is, um, is something that's being toyed now, and, uh, but there's not much data, but just by peer opinion, what is called high, high prophylactic dose anticoagulation, meaning the dose is something like 0 0.5 milligrams. Last two slides. Okay, fine, uh, fine. Okay, uh, 
Uh, so, so monitoring, what made a difference is, uh, it is not that the treatment, uh, it is not the antiviral treatment and steroids and the anticoagulation made a difference. It's also the monitoring guidelines, self-proning and complete rest in bed and drug interactions makes a difference. So we um, taking taking a, a leaf from the, our dengue way, the way we manage dengue. Uh, so we came up with clear guidelines on on how often to monitor for warning signs, how often to do blood tests to pick up those warning signs uh, to decide. So if somebody's got category three, we have to review the patients three times to put, look for these warning signs as well as um, uh, look for look for any deterioration. And somebody requiring oxygen uh, as category four. We have to monitor them four hourly. Again, we have to look for, uh, we, have, we might have to do all these black tests um, um, to look out for cytokine release syndrome so that we can start uh, anti-inflammatory immuno, immunomodulatory therapy early. And uh, last thing is we also looked at, we also very uh, learning from the, the Chinese group, we, where patients are starting to become having exertional dyspnea, we encourage them to do self-proning and we also ask them to be, as far as possible, complete rest in bed. And every single drug that we use, uh, we, we go to this particular website and look for drug interactions because many of the drugs that we use have got lots of drug interaction, especially in the ICU, because they can all prolong the QT interval. And uh, that's it. Thank you. Yes. Dr. Suresh, if you can go back to slide 33, we, I think we, 33, we would like you to repeat that slide. Sorry about that. One more slide, one more. Yes. Uh, yes, this is the one. Okay. Um, so, uh, we, as I mentioned earlier, um, coagulation um, is a big problem with hypercoagulability in, in COVID. There's lots of reports on um, pulmonary embolisms. Um, uh, in, even in Sungai cohort, we have at least seen four or five patients who had confirmed PE. And so, these two arms are very clear cut. Uh, we, we use full-dose anticoagulant. Example, if you use enoxaparin, one milligram per program, 12 hourly for normal renal function. Uh, so for anybody who's got confirmed venous thromboembolism, or even if you suspect pulmonary embolism, maybe by suspect because there is sudden unexplained deterioration, oxygenation, hemodynamic instability, acute core pulmonary by right heart dilatation. When you suspect, you should start full-dose anticoagulation. Um, I'm told by my IC colleagues uh, that... Um, uh, the CRT, CRRT circuits become clotted very easily. So when you start seeing clotting of vascular devices, again, you should start full-dose anticoagulation. On the other end, uh, we, we, we recommend, uh, example, enoxaparin, for example, 30 to 40 milligram daily based on renal function for any patient who requires supplemental oxygen. Uh, so, but, but data is emerging that patients who are while on prophylaxis, data from Netherlands as well as Europe, other parts of Europe, saying that patients on this prophylaxis still get uh, uh, venous thromboembolisms. And so now there is a recommendation that uh, we should use high dose, high prophylactic antidose anticoagulation for a selected group of patients. And these patients are, but the problem with the high dose means 0.25 kilogram 12 hourly, but whom to give is controversial because different centers recommend different things. Um, some, some recommend for all ICU patients. Some say we should base it on D-dimer values. Again, the D-dimer values are different. Some uses 3,000 as a cutoff. Some use 5,000 as a cutoff. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, we, will, we, will, we will meet, we will discuss this, and we will come up with a consensus for this particular part. But I think some require high-dose anticoagulation. Right. Uh, 
Pikmin, was it was it okay? Did you catch everything? Yes. If not, okay. we can. Uh, yeah, we we hear the missing slides, so uh, we shall wait for answer questions. Um, right. Okay. Uh, uh, thank you, Sureshin. I think uh, he may have done this all in 40, 40 minutes or so, but I think it. Uh, what he has done, he has squeezed five or six months of experience around the world into a 40-minute lecture, and he has done it very well. So he has made it very easy for those of us who are not actively seeing patients on a day-to-day basis. Uh, he has summarized it very nicely in a very compact form. Uh, so thank you, Suresh. Just a quick question. We will deal with the proper Q&A together with the both speakers. Uh, I noticed that Rebaverin, it's not in our uh, MOH guideline now. Is that because of uh, data or because of access? Uh, we, 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 we initially started using Rebaverin and then we had problems with anemias and uh, and uh, platelet issues and liver issues and so and so we it's a lot more messier drug to use and uh, and um, uh, other than Hong Kong nobody else were, had tried the drug and so we, we didn't we didn't subsequently follow it up with it. right okay uh, yeah I think mainly it's issue of our own experience with rebarin in treating patients with hepatitis for example there were issues uh, well okay yes. we cannot hear you so I introduce, I think I will, in the interest of time, I will introduce Faiza Muhammad Zin. Faiza has been a good friend of ours. He has been doing this mortality review from the NIH on the COVID-19 patients and chaired by Dr. Dr. Chris. He's also the head of clinical audit unit, medical care quality session at the Medical Development Division in the Ministry of Health. And she has, she has not very young, but she has already 16 years experience working. So without further ado, I would like uh, to invite Dr. Faiza to talk about COVID-19 mortality review in Malaysia. Uh, Assalamualaikum and very good afternoon everyone. Um, I'm Faiza from Medical Development Division. Um, so my presentation today is going to be on COVID-19 mortality review. Uh, as you can see that uh, we are actually the member of the National COVID-19 Mortality Review Committee uh, established in March 2020. Alright, this is the outline of my presentation. So basically, I'm going to start with the background of the committee and then after that, the overview, um, proceed with the demographic and also the clinical profile uh, of our mortality review, risk factors, clinical management, uh, and also our findings and recommendation, and also some of the directives that has been uh, up from our, that has been actually um, circulated from our deputy DGs and DGs office. So a little bit on the background, uh, on the 20th of March, what happened during the National CPRC meeting, uh, which was chaired by our DG, he has decided that we need to form a national committee for COVID-19 mortality review. Uh, as we all know that our first death was on the 17th of March, uh, 2020. And uh, then subsequently, the decision to actually form a committee has come upon during the National CPRC meeting. And on the 23rd of March, um, we had the first, uh, our first discussion with our chairman, Dr. Dr. Chris, our dear Dr. Dr. Chris. And um, the objective of the committee is actually to review the COVID-19 mortality cases, to look at the systemic issues, and also to identify the areas for improvement in order to make recommendations based on the review. In the pursuit of improving patients' outcome and also to reduce morbidity and mortality among COVID-19 patients. So on, from the 27th of March until 18th of June 2020, I mean until today, we had uh, some intensive 
um, review that we had done and uh, in total we had uh, engaged with 13 meetings and uh, you guys got to know that we, uh, we were a little bit aggressive during the initial phase because of uh, our death was uh, actually keep on increasing during the initial phase of the disease progression. So uh, what we had done is that we had a meeting on every Tuesday and also every Friday. Um, the first uh, two initial meetings were physical meetings, then subsequently followed with a teleconferences meeting. How do we do it? We actually collected all the case records, uh, basically BHT, from the uh, respective hospital and then after that subsequently we discuss about the uh, mortality um, and also uh, bear in mind that we actually need to look at every pages of the BHD and um, we get our committee members to actually uh, review the cases and comment on everything as a committee so yeah okay so basically this is our committee as you can see that's our beloved chairman Dr. Dr. Chris um, and then we have um, a very esteemed lineup. We have Dr. Melo with us, Dr. Lech, Dr. Shanti, Dr. Asri, Dr. Anusha, Dr. Siti Swaila, Dr. K, I'm uh, Dr. Dr. Kaufman, <laughs> sorry, Dr. Hidayah, Dr. Karel, uh, Dr. Azaini, our forensic team, Dr. Sio, our forensic team, Dr. Fazila uh, from our medical care quality section, Dr. Noraisha, and also Dr. Shaniza from medical development division. And um, our, I'm one of the secretariat and also with my team clinical audit unit. Um, in January 2020, WHO has defined uh, the death of COVID-19 is actually the death of a person with laboratory confirmation of COVID-19 infection, irrespective of clinical signs and symptoms. Since our death, uh, our first death happened in gen in, on the 17th March of 2020, um, hence we followed this definition. And um, the definition of mortality rate is actually number of death with positive COVID-19 laboratory test divided by the number of positive cases at the given period of time. Um, however, after we had followed the definition and then on the 16th of April, WHO has published this international guideline for certification and uh, coding for COVID-19 as a cause of death. So it was clearly stated that um, a death due to COVID-19 is defined for surveillance purposes as a death resulting from a clinically compatible illness in a probable or confirmed COVID-19 case, unless there is a clear alternative cause of death that cannot be related to COVID disease, for example, trauma. There should be no period of complete recovery from COVID-19 between illness and also death. A death due to COVID-19 may not be attributed to another disease, for example, cancer, and should be counted independently of the existing conditions that are suspected of triggering a severe cause of COVID-19. So luckily for countries which had their first death after 16th of April, they followed this new definition. But for us, we are still stick to the old definition. So it's a little bit overview on our mortality uh, rate. As you can see, this is comparison with our Asian country. And uh, you can see that Malaysians, our mortality rate today until yesterday is at 1.42 percent um, as compared to Singapore is 0.06 percent, uh, Thailand is 1.85 percent, Myanmar 2.29 percent and Philippines is 4.07 percent. Indonesia, yeah, as we all know, their, their mortality rate is about 5.49 percent. So we are actually doing quite well. Um, and this is actually 
the graph shows um, our first mortality until yesterday. So as you can see from the 17th of March, we had uh, reached our peak somewhere around um, end of somewhere around end of March, and then subsequently um, our first recommendation from the mortality committee actually happened on the 30th of March and then uh, we had a series of recommendations after that and um, after we reached the peak somewhere around mid of April then after that we started to have sloping down of the graph and then our death is plateauing at more or less zero to one per day until yesterday. So uh, at this point of time our death number is actually at 121 uh, and our positive cases in Malaysia is 8,515. Um, this is actually mortality by state. Um, you do not need to actually conclude that Perlis is actually having the highest mortality. This is simply because the denominator is a bit lower in Perlis as compared to other, other states. Uh, but this is basically the mortality rate for every state. Um, this is actually the number of mortality based on hospital. Um, again, do not assume that HKL is not doing well. It's, it's nothing uh, to do with that. It is simply because, uh, as we all know that in Malaysia, what we have done is that we have classified our hospital into COVID hospital, hybrid hospital, and also non-COVID hospital. So HKL happened to be one of the hybrid hospital. Also, Hospital Kuching is one of the COVID hospitals. Sungai Bulo, again, is a COVID hospital. And also, Kluang is a COVID hospital. So, of course, when they actually being referred to all those cases, of course, I mean, uh, common sense, you know, uh, their death is going to be a little bit higher compared to other hospitals. Uh, and if we look at uh, the next slide, uh, we look at the cause of death. So, based from the death certificate, uh, about 81% of our cause of death is actually being contributed by pneumonia. And then the moment the patients set in with pneumonia, they started to have multi-organ failure, ARDS. Uh, but having said that, um, there are a few instances, about 9%, about 10% actually, patients die because of acute coronary syndrome, perhaps due to complication of that disease itself, or maybe because of it's the primary disease. As you know, like what Dr. Suresh had mentioned that uh, most of the patients, they have multiple comorbid hypertension. Uh, some of them uh, is a, a well-known case of uh, heart diseases, uh, acute coronary diseases. So uh, this is bound to happen. And then um, there are about 4% died uh, due to malignancy uh, and uh, isolated cases uh, about 0.8%. Uh, due to acute pulmonary edema, hanging, severe dehydration, ruptured triple A. Yeah, hanging. Yeah, that's why ruptured triple uh, A, and also one unknown case of which we didn't know. Uh, basically, we have no idea. Uh, it's not that we have no idea. It says that when the patients come, we really do not have any information on that uh, disease. Okay. Uh, then we proceed with uh, the demography and also clinical profile data. Uh, this is roughly based on nationality or mortality. Uh, majority of our uh, death is actually Malaysian, about 96%. Non-Malaysian contributed about 3.3%. Unknown is about 0.83%. Um, this is uh, the gender-specific mortality rate. 
Oh, yeah, I can change it here. Easier for me. Now, because the video is on this side, so I can't see. But anyway, yeah, okay. <laughs> now I can. <laughs> so basically, gender specific mortality rate. Um, uh, basically, okay, as, as uh, what we know, uh, that uh, male is actually um, more uh, predominant than uh, female in terms of mortality rate and also in terms of number of positive cases. So for male, for our mortality, uh, it's about 72%. Female is about 27%. But the male mortality rate and also our female mortality rate is almost the same uh, in Malaysia. It's male is about 1.43%. Female is about 1.4%. Uh, Race-specific mortality rate for our uh, mortality uh, is Malay contributed uh, about 1.65%, Chinese about 4.7%, Indian 3.5%, Bumiputra Sarawak is about 1.5% and Bumiputra Sabah is about 0.5%. Uh, Age-specific mortality rate, okay, this is the same throughout the world uh, and as what uh, Dr. Suresh have mentioned that uh, the older you are, the more severe disease that you will get. Uh, and um, it's true, um, if we base on our mortality data, uh, it looks the same actually. If you look at our graph, um, those who are actually below 50, the mortality rate is only about, not even reaching 1%. But if you see that uh, those who are actually above 50, uh, mortality rate 50 to 59 years old, mortality rate is about 1.87%. Um, 60 to 69 years old, mortality rate is about 5.28%. And then if you look at more than 80 years old, contributed about 22% of our data. And then after that, uh, 70 to 79 years old is about 12% uh, of our data. Uh, and when we look at the onset of symptom to death, uh, the mean is actually about 16 days and then um, if you majority of them uh, actually uh, died uh, after the onset of symptom more than nine days so it's about 87 percent um, and if you look at symptoms uh, onset of symptom to admission uh, majority of our patients actually presented to us uh, the mean is about seven days and uh, majority of them came after a week. So uh, it's, it's quite a late presentation, like what Dr. Suresh mentioned just now. Uh, the best time to catch up is actually when, they, when the onset of symptoms is actually less than five days. So if you look at our data, most of them actually came after seven days after a week. So admission to death, um, somehow when we manage our patient, majority of them manage to survive more than nine days. So about 50% of them actually stayed in our hospital more than nine days. So the mean is actually about 10 days and the mean, um, more than 50% is more than nine days. So uh, this stage at the presentation, I mean during admission, uh, majority of our cases came late. Um, about 21% came at the stage of three. And then after that, um, 57% came at stage 4 and then about 14% came at stage 5. So as we know that uh, Dr. Suresh have mentioned just now about when we talk about stage 3, it's actually still mild but it's, it can progress to stage 4 uh, quite easily as we know that the disease progression is very, very fast. Patient can deteriorate very, very fast. So when patient presented to us 
at stage three. So usually that is the time that we need to alert our anesthetists and also our team to be more vigilant in terms of managing these patients. Uh, presenting symptom, the most common presenting symptom is actually uh, shortness of breath. But this is not surprising simply because when they come at the stage of uh, at this at stage three, stage four, and also stage five, they already uh, they are, they were already very symptomatic, and uh, at the same time uh, they required supplemental oxygen, followed by fever, cough, uh, diarrhea, and vomiting, and also myalgia, then sore throat. And two of our uh, mortality cases, they presented with anosmia. Um, where do they come from? Majority of our mortality cases came from government hospital, referred from government hospital. Uh, and then um, followed by walking into our ED. Then after that, referred from our clinic Sehatan, followed by referred from private hospital. And then some from PKD, some from GP, some from the quarantine center. So we move on to the risk factor. It's the same like what Dr. Suraj uh, has presented just now. Majority of our patients, uh, our case uh, actually with underlying hypertension, uh, diabetes, followed by diabetes and then coronary artery disease, dyslipidemia, chronic kidney disease, um, obesity, heart failure, malignancy, and then followed by chronic liver disease. And one of the uh, disease is actually underlying HIV. When we talk about others, it's basically immunocompromised state of which they have some psoriasis, they have hyperthyroidism. So it's, it's multiple comorbids actually. And if you look at this data, uh, basically we can see that about 70% of our disease um, have multiple comorbids, more than one comorbidities, about 70%. And uh, single comorbidity contributed about 22%. No comorbidity contributed about 8.5%, but when we talk about the those disease with no comorbidity, what happened was they actually usually presented late. So because perhaps they are very, very well, so their thought is just a normal URTI symptom, so they presented quite late to us. Um, and um, our base from our data, uh, those from the disease, non-smoker contributed about 79.52% and smokers contributed about 20.48%. So in terms of clinical management, I, uh, I'm just going to go through roughly about this. Um, we have about 63% of the disease is actually being managed, uh, were actually being managed in ICU. Uh, somehow about 21% we manage outside the ICU, but bear in mind, during the initial stage, uh, COVID-19 is a new disease. So basically, we were actually quite struggling with, you know, our, our facilities, not just our facilities, but also in terms of managing the patient. So we thought that perhaps when we intubate the patient in the negative pressure room, in the ward, uh, it was suffice enough. But but uh, to, to, to be, I mean, when the disease progression, when we know how to manage the our COVID-19 better, we know that actually the patient needs to be um, intubated and ventilated in ICU. So happened to be uh, about 13 of them uh, from that 21% is actually being ventilated and intubated in the ward, um, but in the negative pressure room. And then about uh, four of them was brought in uh, BID and then um, four of them was uh, DNR. So number of cases treated with uh, hydrochloroquine, um, majority received hydrochloroquine, uh, about 80%, and 
um, only about 20% did not receive hydrochloroquine. Um, number of cases treated with antiviral and also antibiotic, about 90% re uh, received both. Uh, only about 10% did not receive um, any antiviral or antibiotic. Uh, but as you can see, the aid is actually being, uh, the fraction of the aid is actually from coming from the BID and also from the DNR cases. Okay, so after we have reviewed um, majority of the cases, so basically we have 121 cases and uh, we managed to actually look into 60, around 70 BHD to date. And uh, based from that 70 BHD, um, more or less uh, majority of the issues are actually uh, recurring issues and um, it happened during the initial phase of the disease. So um, based on that, what we have found is that um, most of the patient, the patient, you guys are losing me? Okay, okay. can. Okay, so majority of the patients may look very comfortable. So like what Dr. Suresh have mentioned that you really need to assess the general appearance of the patient together with the clinical examination and also the laboratory parameters. Uh, not only that, together with the radiological findings. Um, the patient, most of the patient is in hypercoagulable state. So DVT prophylaxis must be started early. Uh, prompt anticipation of COVID-19 patient deterioration status. So basically the patient needs require, uh, do require close monitoring. And uh, when we see the patients come uh, stage three, and after that, need some uh, NS referral, need intubation, so the patient needs to be ventilated in ICU. Um, not only that, we also look into some other things rather than only clinical management, but when we talk about some other things, we're talking about communication between the managing team, uh, between the emergency physician, between the physician, the infectious disease physician, also uh, with the anesthetist and so the intensivist. This is actually to prevent any delay in treatment and management. Uh, some logistic arrangement for ICU care between COVID uh, and non-COVID hospital also needs to be strengthened. And this, all this has been done after our first recommendation. So it's not that we are saying because of the delay of patient died, you cannot pinpoint one single factor why the patient died, but we have to bear in mind that this logistic arrangement do occur. Uh, logistic uh, problem do occur um, at the initial phase of the disease. So this is one of the things that we have looked into. And also early referral to the critical care team, especially for elderly for the high-risk uh, patients, elderly, pregnancy, obese, or any COVID-19 patient with comorbidity, regardless of stage representation. Okay. So when we talk about our recommendation, what we are looking into is actually we are looking to improve the outcome to reduce morbidity and also mortality. And at the same time, we are looking at the post-MCO uh, and also future pandemic preparedness. So because of that, we are looking into three things of which we are looking into uh, we are looking at the structure, the process, and also the outcome uh, of what we are doing on the ground and also at the administrative level. So, but the foundation of all this is that the hospital administrator must be involved in the management of COVID, especially in the mortality review discussion. Because as we all know, that it's not all about the clinical management. It's also about the administrative of the hospital in terms of uh, we providing the best quality care for our patients. And also at the same time, the uh, we need to enhance multidisciplinary communication in managing 
COVID-19 cases and also the teamwork must be there uh, in order for us to actually achieve all this. So in terms of structure, uh, basically we have proposed that uh, patients should be managed in ICU, the hospital must prepare a mortality report uh, and also systemic referral and patient transfer from one centre to another must be there. Uh, for our preparedness, future preparedness, post-MCO and also another pandemic preparedness. I hope not, but we never know. So uh, in terms of structure, our intensive care unit shall be equipped with negative pressure rule. Uh, proper logistic and resources management in terms of transferring COVID-19 patients, proper laboratory setup, uh, and also the planning uh, of the capacity building of the subspecialty training, especially for intensivists and infectious disease physicians. Uh, when we talk about process, uh, we must remember that we uh, need to comply with the usage of uh, whatever, you know, the admission sheet that we have come out, monitoring sheet that we have come out, and also the guideline of COVID-19 management. Uh, that uh, All this we have come up with the help, uh, with collaboration with our ID physician, with our hospital administrator. So the compliance to all these uh, policies that we have put uh, in line is actually a must. Um, and early referral to the critical care team. Uh, for the post-MCO and future pandemic preparedness in terms of process, we must remember that uh, continuity of care of COVID-19 patients is very important, especially when we talk about the uh, down, I mean, uh, from the COVID hospital to non-COVID hospital. So the continuity of care must be there. Adherence to the utilization of PPE and also guideline and also uh, we might need to consider to use mechanical CPR device for infectious disease patient. And in terms of outcome, clinical documentation needs to be improved. Uh, basically, no more chatology, especially on the respiratory rate, uh, the examination finding, um, especially on assertional dyspnea, on the SpO2 monitoring, uh, DVT prophylaxis, and also standardized blood investigation that may indicate patient status like what Dr. Suresh mentioned, uh, CRP and also serum ferritin. Um, and then in terms of future preparedness, uh, we need to develop a guideline for DVT prophylaxis. I believe that this is work in progress with the intensivists. And then revision of SOP and guidelines from time to time. Uh, it's a new disease, so it's still evolving in terms of management. Uh, and uh, hence, our SOP and also our guideline must be revised from time to time. Uh, we also need to focus on research and publication. We do have a lot of data, but uh, yet, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. So we must focus on research and publication. And then after that, um, continuous education and also con continuous awareness on COVID-19. And um, we need I mean, we should use postmortem as a tool to understand the clinical cause of disease, uh, of which we usually, um, sometimes we take it for granted, I must say. So that is the reason why our postmortem team, uh, our forensic team is actually on board with us in the committee. I'm sure that please disagree with this. Okay, so I'm going to share you with some of our directives. So basically, we had our first meeting on the 28th of March. So on the 30th of March, we came up with our first admission sheet. And this is uh, together with our ID physician. Uh, so, and uh, it has been circulated uh, on the 30th of March. 
Um, and then after that, on the 12th of April, we come up with our infographic recommendation Enhanced Quality Care Improved Patient Outcome in Hospital Setting for COVID-19 Patients. So we were talking about the admissions, what to do during admission, what to see during admissions, what do you need to identify during admissions, and then after that, during inpatient time, what do you need to monitor, what do you need to actually really look into when the patient is actually in the ward. And then after that, the discharge plan, what are the criteria for discharge plan, uh, the discharge criteria for the ward. And then um, continuous surveillance letter, um, a lot, a lot of letters coming out from the deputy GT office. I think everyone knows this, but uh, the the two most common, um, not most common, what I mean is that the, the, the most aggressive letter is actually coming from deputy DG when he talks about the continuous surveillance of uh, patients, uh, COVID-19 patients management. Uh, so uh, if you look into the letter, the content is actually more or less the same, but we really have to do it very aggressively because at that point of time, we really think that there's no other way to do it rather than uh, being very aggressive in terms of our directive. And um, we also have come up with a uh, reclassification of the cause of death based on the new guideline that came out on the 16th of April. So uh, we need to reclassify our death. It's not that we want to actually amend the number of deaths, but we really need to be clear of our death, whether is it uh, whether the patient died because of COVID or I mean died of COVID or died with COVID. So this is the reason why this letter came out. And then uh, at the same time, we actually have circulated another uh, letter uh, for the hospital to do their own mortality review at hospital level for COVID-19 death. So in summary, uh, our committee hopes that our recommendation made will be taken into consideration, of which majority of our recommendation has been taken into consideration. Um, and uh, this is actually to ensure the best outcome and the highest quality of care being delivered to our patients. And um, the recommendation must be carried out in synchronization with the clinical team in the management of COVID-19 patients. And the findings and data that has been generated should be combined with our clinical data to ensure the overall improvement can be carried out systematically. Um, as a committee with the collaboration with NIH, uh, with CRC actually, uh, with Datuk uh, Ghosting, we are coming out with our paper, our very first paper on mortality review, perhaps somewhere next week. Another one, please. Perhaps somewhere next week. So, so, tunggu. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So with that, I thank you. Thank you very much, Faiza. I think I pass the mic back to Chris to do the Q&A session. Okay. Uh, Faiza, thank you very much. Uh, I, I don't know what you did to yourself, but you look younger, so it must be good. Post-COVID. Uh, okay, I'll just go straight to the questions. Uh, because time is running out. Uh, and uh, let's start off with the uh, first question to Suresh. Uh, could you talk about drug therapy in COVID, namely about the withdrawn paper on hydroxychloroquine? Uh, and also on dexamethasone, uh, which initially people, including the WHO, was telling us not to use steroids up front. Now, of course, having said that, it's not wrong. We are not using steroids up front. But uh, I think Suresh may have addressed this, but maybe Suresh, would you like to summarize these thoughts? Uh, the, the hydroxychloroquine paper, obviously, uh, uh, the concern, we, we agree with it, that uh, it, doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to be useful for COVID, but we disagree with it, saying that it was it was caused so much mortality. Uh, we don't think that happened um, uh, uh, because we were monitoring our cases because we were looking at the ECGs and all that. But anyway, you all know now that it was based on a 
a faulty uh, data set and 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 uh, and uh, which data set overcalled uh, the arrhythmias and there was not there were never that much arrhythmias in hydroxychloroquine arm neither is our response we didn't see that much arrhythmias uh, that much cardiac deaths we will be we will be publishing those datas uh, but we never saw that much cardiac deaths uh, due to hydroxychloroquine uh, with regards to steroids just to be fair who and others said there is no evidence for steroids yet number 1 and number 2 uh, which which is right and number 2 they also mentioned that in sars it did harm in influenza it did harm and that's the reason they're not keen but earlier on uh, we had seen um, uh, our own experience after hearing from the chinese and then from the italians we started using uh, started using steroids end of march for the selected group of patients with crs and we have been using it since um, end of march as a, as a standard of care from on our side right uh, uh thank you suresh i think just in relation to what suresh has said i think covid-19 also told tells us how careful we must be in sending out papers for publication i think our robustness in reviewing research papers cannot be let down and here because of the need to get data out fast i think uh, many publications many journals uh, let loose on that particular area became more lax with that area and i think uh, hydroxychloroquine now we look back at it we will say how did we get to our position of making it the norm for all cases uh, and i think it that is a good example for us not to follow again uh now the next question uh, uh let's talk to suresh but here to be fair Uh, i'm not sure whether you're looking after babies anymore but uh, okay uh, about kawasaki like illness among pediatrics perhaps you have some feedback from yeah. the i i don't uh, we have not seen one so far but i think it's a rare manifestation and um, um, lucky for us you know we didn't have that many uh, patients infected in that age group in the country and so um, we have not seen one so far uh, and i'm not surprised because um, it is a very rare manifestation right as suresh mentioned i think our number of cases of peds were actually very small compared to the adults um so we probably won't be the uh country but you want to look for such cases right but it's good to be aware certainly uh i want to ask a, a question to faiza uh we know that the in the later parts of our our national mortality committee we brought in our forensic colleagues to to help us with in the committee uh Can you share with us of oh, clearly we are not doing postmortem for every case going forward let's hope there are not many more cases to come in terms of mortality but going forward what is our game plan for ministry of health in terms of when do we do postmortems among covid-19 cases who may pass away in the future faiza oh okay thank you dr chris for the question so uh based on our last discussion uh for with our forensic team and also at the national cbrc um we will proceed with postmortem for the unknown death and also for bid cases so not everyone we will consider to do postmortem and uh perhaps for those uh patients who are death at a very young age so we might consider that uh to proceed with our postmortem so that was the uh plan the, the last plan that we have discussed Uh, I think there's a question on uh, COVID-19 strain in Southeast Asia. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not well versed with the with the different strains that is infecting the different parts of the kind of, different parts of the world currently. Okay, uh, 
Yeah, not something we, we, we are looking at at the moment, to be frank. Uh, at least maybe only in Hmong IMR, uh, only within IMR. Uh, the next question is, are there any COVID-19 cases in Malaysia uh, or abroad that affects patients with hemoglobinopathies such as thalassemia or sickle cell? Offhand, I can't remember of a case uh, that had thalassemia. Uh, sickle cell disease, of course, it's very rare in Malaysia. Uh, often, I can't think of a, a thalassemia patient with COVID-19, but I, I'm going to miss one of them. Yeah. Uh, what is the next question? Is, what is the panelist's view on using HCQED early stage of COVID-19 that reduce severity of disease? So, so that, this is what we were hoping, right? We were hoping that when we start hydroxychloroquine early stage, it'll prevent severe disease. The preliminary data on our data set, which is unfortunately is a is a, a before and after study with historical cohorts, tells us that it did not do so, it did not prevent, did not uh, reduce the severity of COVID-19 patients, number one. Number two, of course, our study is not um, powered enough. It can only pick up up to an 18% difference. Anything less than an 18% difference, we can't pick it up. The more definitive study is the NIH study that's going to be published soon. Um, and so currently there is no data to say that it, it, it does that. It reduces severity of COVID-19 patients. Thank you, Suresh. The next question is, uh maybe a topic that you have covered just now, but uh, a question is on hydroxychloroquine. Uh, perhaps uh, they missed that slide you talked about. What is the role of yeah. hydroxychloroquine? Uh, yeah, I saw, the, I saw the question just now. Yeah. Um, so the other question was like regarding WHO withdrawing the, the, the recruitment. I think, I think we, had a, uh, we, we had some discussions yesterday, and uh, I think uh, the WHO's preliminary um, Data also shows that uh, you know um, the hydroxychloroquine compared to placebo, there was no advantage of hydroxychloroquine over placebo, and I think um, uh, they are also in the process of um, um, withdrawing that arm uh, from future studies. Uh, Faiza, yeah. um, now uh, we we hope we don't get a second search, but uh, as DG has mentioned many times, we are preparing for that possibility. So in terms of the clinical setup that we have uh, going forward, is there going to be a change in the way we set up our clinical services for COVID-19? Uh, as you know, there are some COVID-19 hospitals, Sungai Buloh being one of them, uh, but we also have other hospitals who are a bit of a hybrid uh, platform. But going forward, will there be a change in the way we deal with COVID-19 in terms of our care delivery? To be honest, um, we at the Medical Development Division, we have uh, already prepared a few guidelines um, and also a few uh, SOPs of which how we are supposed to seize our patient and how we're supposed to operate on a daily basis based on the needs of us to actually protect our healthcare worker and also to protect our patients. Uh, and uh, basically, we need to actually uh, break the change of COVID-19 transmission. So um, everything is actually, I, I can see that everything is in place before Dr. Rohaizad retires. So, uh, and we have passed up all the guidelines and also the SOPs and all the policies to the hospital and at this point of time uh, whatever that we are doing from the uh, COVID hospital to the hybrid hospital to the non-COVID hospital uh, the transition has been uh, quite smooth I must say although there 
uh, I couldn't deny there must be some hiccups at the ground, but at the same time, we are trying to do our best in order to actually to facilitate our hospital. So uh, under the medical program, we are actually um, looking very, very hard into it and very, very detailed into it. And everything is actually in place. Um, this is actually to the best interest of protecting our healthcare worker and also our patients. So uh, they, they, there are a lot of changes in terms of how we deliver our care, not just about the, uh, we try to actually promote uh, video um, teleconferencing, I mean, video telehealth consultation, not just that, uh, we actually uh, ensure that our hospital practice the 3W, practice the 3Cs. So um, I, I, I would say that everything is in place, Dr. Chris. Uh, just a quick question to, to Suresh. Uh, he mentioned about uh, steroids and we are all actually happy to see the, the, the data on recovery for, for DEXA because it's a drug that we can get easy access to. Obviously, Toxidizumab has also has good data coming forward. Are you aware of any studies that compare these two head-to-head? -head? Are you aware of that? Um, I think um, some of the centres, I think Sungai Bulu, um, um, uh, Seremban and the UM, uh, actually, we have a study currently going on that is comparing methylpred versus tocilizumab. And um, uh, we are starting in patients who got category 4 disease. And our aim is to, uh, outcome that we're looking for is whether it will prevent intubation. Um, uh, we, have, we have, the study is ready to roll, but um, <laughs> luckily for us, we don't have any uh, patients to uh, enter the study. But that's something that we want to study currently. I, I hate to be a wet blanket. I hope you never have to do that study. Uh, even though we need it, uh, because you certainly don't want many Malaysians getting uh, stage four or five. Uh, but yeah, we get a point. Sometimes the timing, timing. So in a way, uh, but I, I'm sure all of us agree, let's hope we don't have so many cases. Uh, uh, there's a question here. Are patients on um, uh, drug modif uh, disease-modifying agents and long-term or lesser you get CRS? Uh, we don't know yet. Uh, we don't have enough patients in these groups uh, for us to tell you whether... Um, whether they can, uh, I'm frankly, I, I've not seen a single patient win on disease modifying agents um, um, on, on, on who got COVID so far. Maybe they're very careful in not, uh, not making sure they are in maintaining social distancing. And so we don't know that yet. Uh, total mortality, my friendliness, if I'm not mistaken, the, so I, I just want to point out to you regarding uh, frontliners uh, and H and uh, heart and uh, COVID, right? So our data says 52% of the frontliners got COVID because of, um, uh, from a healthcare worker to healthcare worker. About 21% developed got COVID because they got it from the community. Only 18% of them got it from another patient, right? So it's a very small group of people who got it from other group. The second data I want to point out to you is we did a, we did a, a antibody study for about 400 frontline healthcare workers for managing COVID in both HKL and Sungai Bulu, and but we didn't find a single one who had antibodies. You know, it's uh, that's that's the second amount of data I want to point out to you, right? Um, I think there were two frontliners who's passed away um, um, uh, due to COVID. If I remember right, there's one in Perlis, another one in uh, in Johor. Um, that's the data. Are we going to use convalescent plasma in Malaysia? We have convalescent plasma available. We have, we have already collected it and we have kept it ready. And, um, and uh, of course, uh, you know, with uh, so much data and so many other drugs available, we have not used one yet, but we have it uh, if it needs to be used.
I'll answer the last one and then I'll ask Faizah to answer the pitfalls that we picked up. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I don't have the data on sequencing of the viral strains and mutations. Maybe we should ask uh, NIH whether they will consider another update on these issues uh, uh, from IMR on a later date. Yeah, we, we did hear from, from IMR that they have been doing this. Uh, uh, and of course, when we do a lot, we might find some change in the sequence, which doesn't mean it's a sustained mutation. But I, I think it's a good idea. Maybe uh, Dr. Go can pass a message to the IMR folks. Maybe perhaps uh, find the right time to, to talk about this as well. Now, uh, Faiza, uh, I know you gave a short summary just now, but if you could summarize very quickly, what are the common pitfalls that we picked up uh, uh, from the mortality review. I think especially during the first few yeah. sessions. That yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the common pitfalls that we pick up from our mortality review, uh, of course, the monitoring part. But this is all happened during the initial phase of the uh, disease. So basically, we are talking about somewhere in March and early April. Because subsequently after that, uh, it seems that everything seems to be in place. So as you can see from our graph, uh, everything yeah. has gone down. And become plateauing. So it actually reflects a lot on uh, the aggressiveness of our management on the ground. So, the, but the common pitfall is actually again is our monitoring at the initial phase and also the awareness uh, to our people that they need to come early. Uh, uh, basically, the the suspicious. Uh, of the disease on the ground. So uh, as, as we progress, uh, as we go along from March to April to May, then our, even our community is more aware about the disease. Then subsequently, we can detect uh, the, the, the disease at the early stage and then uh, early emission, uh, early stage of presentation. So that I guess that's the reason why that we are actually doing quite well at this point of time. Uh, thank you, Faiza. All right. Now, uh, uh, we're going to wrap up soon, but uh, if there are any questions, uh, feel free uh, to send in. So, can, can I add uh, a little bit more information? So basically, no, the, the death among our healthcare workers, our frontliners, there are two deaths. One is actually in uh, Johor and another one is in Perlis. Uh, but both, they, they did not contract the illness from our patient or from uh, from, uh, you know, they, they contracted the disease basically from the community. So it's not coming from uh, our routine work. So I, I have to make clear of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I think having said that, as what Suresh has said, I, I think despite the initial problems with PPEs and things like that, generally the guidelines uh, are robust enough in terms of addressing infection control issues with COVID-19. And I think we should be comfortable with that. And now that as we are prepared for the second search, perhaps I think we can probably deal with it even better going forward. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I think I think we are we are pretty okay in that area. I, the most important thing is whether our compliance, our adherence to it, yes. whether our, our folks who are treating patients uh, are adequately trained and motivated to do that. Now, all right. We know it works. I think that's clear enough. Is is the sustainability part actually that please? Correct. Correct. And. and I think the fear for many of us is as our numbers drop, and, and this happens in all types of outbreaks, just like dengue, as the numbers drop, all of us get a bit complacent. All of us think that maybe I don't have to wash my hands so much, I don't have to wear this or wear that, nothing happens anyway. Uh, I, I hope nobody becomes the first case because of that. Uh, so I think for the leaders on the ground, the, the heads of services on the ground, they must make sure they maintain how important this is. Uh, it is still a very deadly disease. Uh, I think look at the world figures 
uh, it is still more than 400 over 1,000 people have died from this disease around the world. It's no joke. It's no joke. Uh, now, uh, one last question here. Uh, Suresh, maybe. Uh, could you comment on the false positive on PCR testing? I, I heard him snigger when he saw that question, so let him snigger some more. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, false positive PCRs, I mean, um, uh, so we do have uh, uh, patients, um, it's tricky to say what is, what is false positive because um, uh, as you remember, COVID diagnosis requires uh, a PCR. The gold standard is PCR positive. So when a PCR is positive, but the patient, but when the, and, uh, and the patient doesn't have uh, any symptoms, which is okay because many people are asymptomatic. Uh, if the PCR is positive, they're asymptomatic. And in addition, nobody else seems to get the disease. Then the question now is whether it is false positive or not comes up, right? In, uh, so we, 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 the possibilities are, we are picking up these people towards the tail end of their disease. At, at day 13 or day 14 of the disease, that time the PCR can be as low values. That could be one possibility. The second possibility I want to point out is this, the, it's a statistical stuff, right? So whenever you have a disease that is very rare, when a disease becomes rare, slowly, slowly what will happen will be the, even though the sensitivity and specificity of the test is very good, the positive predictive value of the test starts dropping. So the chance of you coming the false positive is high. And so as we start getting our disease freak incidence in the country is lower and lower and lower, the positive predictive value of any diagnostic test will drop. And that's something that we cannot run away from. And so obviously uh, we need to put clinical and epidemiological data all together to determine the value of any, any test result. Yeah, I mean, the question here was about false positives. And as Suresh mentioned, it's a very sensitive test. If the if the sample was taken adequately. So false positive probably doesn't happen that often unless there's a significant contamination at the lab level. But the SOPs are really out there, so I think that probably doesn't happen very often. Uh, false negative is a whole different ballgame, depending when you take the test, depending how the test, the specimen was taken, etc. Uh, and as Suresh mentioned, especially when our numbers in the community drops, how sensitive the test is also uh, will be impacted upon. So it, it will change. The question is this, if we do a, if the patient has high risk, if the patient has some has symptoms to, are consistent with COVID-19, if you get a negative test, please do it again. That's, that's a given. That has to be the case. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to summarize now because uh, time is, is running short. Uh, I think we have... I doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Okay, can, can, is it okay, Mohan? Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Technical issues here again. I'm going to wrap up and I just want to thank the two speakers, uh, both Suresh and Faiza, for their excellent and clear presentation. Uh, clearly, it tells us how far we have gone. Five months ago, we were preparing for a pandemic that is a true pandemic. H1N1 was a false pandemic, if you can argue the case. But this is for real, because we saw the mortality and, and it was shocking and we know how fast it spread. But quickly, we know in the last five months, we have found a way to deal with it. In terms of prevention, we know what works. We know social distancing works. We know that hygiene 
especially hand hygiene, surface disinfection at the right times work. And I believe strongly that masking works, especially in your confined space where you cannot social distance. We know that. That works. And we are pretty solid with that. We also know in terms of treatment, there's been also significant progress. Uh, even hydroxychloroquine now, that we understand that it may not work so well, to me, is progress. We are not using it as much now. And as Suresh mentioned in the guidelines for Ministry of Health, we have sort of dropped it uh, in the initial uh, recommendation to, for treatment for COVID-19. But over the last four or five months, we have now good data on remdesivir, a drug that we do not have free access yet in this, in this country, but I guess it will come, maybe it take a bit longer. But we are not completely helpless. We do have the antivirals that we have repurposed, for example, Calitra or Lopidemvir that we can use for that. Uh, we have to interfere on. And of course, we have Pravipravir, which we actually is an anti-influenza drug. So there's something we can do. Uh, we now understand the way to use the immune modulators and dexamethasone is not expensive. So I think that's an important message to say that when patients get admitted, it's not just for isolation, there's something we can do for them. And I think that's important. One thing that uh, I think Suresh alluded to and also something we saw clearly in our uh, mortality uh, reviews, that many patients, especially during the early part of the outbreak in Malaysia, many of them came in very late. And I think the moment they came in, they were in four, they were in stage five, and the doctors on the ground were struggling with it. So I think this is an important message that we as healthcare providers and other stakeholders must share with our population. If you have symptoms, you need to come forward early enough. And we hope that the treatment plat that testing platform will be fast enough uh, and broad enough, wide enough that we can pick cases up early and we can get onto the management uh, earlier, because now we can safely say there are some treatments that we know can work. And I think that's an important message. So with that, uh, I would like to uh, wrap up today's session. Again, thank you, Suresh. Thank you, Faiza, uh, for your excellent presentation. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Go, as usual, uh, for standing in for me and also uh, making sure all of us behave ourselves. Except for the internet access in Sungai Below, maybe you can donate something again. He likes to donate things to us. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank uh, everyone who has joined in today. I hope you have a great coming weekend. Uh, and if it's not too late, to wish you Selamat Hari Raya. So with that, uh, thank you from uh, ICR and NIH. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you.